Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Riddell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sinsat. What's going on, man? Not much, man. I'm glad to be here for another episode. Oh, yeah. Um, this episode, we talked to uh, our own Anthony Zufelt, Senior Solutions Specialist here at Applied Software, and it was a pretty interesting topic that he kind of brought to us, and it was this idea that we should start to treat our um, AEC companies as technology firms. And he kept repeating this idea of, you know, I'm a tech firm that does AEC. And we talked about things of, you know, like the growth mindset, the startup mindset, uh, sort of that more entrepreneurial spirit. What did you think about the, the discussion? Yeah, I was really excited for this one because, you know, we work with Anthony internally and we both know how sharp of a person he is and this topic you know I was a little bit skeptical at first when he first brought it to me just because you know I came from construction and I don't think anybody would accuse construction companies of having a startup mindset at least not most of them <laughs> so um, I thought you know it was a really interesting topic it definitely brought me out of my comfort zone as far as the way that I think about the industry and, you know, I definitely learned some good stuff from this episode. And I think a lot of our listeners will, too. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because you kept referring, you know, on your past experiences in construction and, and rightfully so that it, that's going to be a harder part of the industry to adopt this type of mindset or, or, or act like a tech company. Uh, and the focus is more on the design side. So when you listen in, you'll hear, you know, Jackson, when you were a little, little hesitant to the idea, but you came around. I wanted to be really facetious and say, uh, you know, are we going to have nap pods in our job site trailers? <laughs> you know, you guys might be happier if you had nap pods. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> what's funny is somebody was telling me that um, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal a while back, and it was talking about getting adjusted to the post-pandemic time and how a lot of people work from home and one of the things was that people have grown accustomed to taking naps throughout the day and now when they go back into the workforce they don't have those accommodations so you might end up with nap pods in a in a job trailer so hey as long as there's a ping pong table in there too i'm good the trailer's gonna get full <laughs> <laughs> But uh, no, it was a good episode. We enjoyed having Anthony on. Always makes for a good talk. So we, we hope you get to listen, enjoy, and check back for more. Today... We have a special guest, Anthony Zufelt, Senior Solutions Specialist here at Applied Software. How's it going, man? It's going great. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, this topic interested us, and it was this idea of sort of looking at how we rebuild our firms moving forward, really with a technology focus. And before we even dive into the topic, I'm really curious, like, what has inspired you to even, you know, look at this type of stuff and, and want to bring it onto the podcast? Well, I, th I think there's there's a lot of things at play that kind of, you know, touch on why this is such a focus of mine. And it goes back to kind of the threads that have shaped my career, but also current events, right? Um, I, I think you talk about 
you know, with COVID and kind of we're exiting the pandemic now, at least in America. And there's a lot of things that are coming out of this that have really fundamentally reshaped the way we look at organizations and the way we operate. It's all interesting stuff. And, and really there's an opportunity right now to potentially shift the way we operate as organizations in AEC to a space where we're working more as uh, technology companies. I think it's an interesting topic and I'll be really interested as we go through and hear even from the construction perspective um, from Jackson, because you mentioned even, you know, you equated it to Silicon Valley and the companies that come out of there. Uh, there's also this idea with a lot of those companies of sort of this startup mindset. Uh, the AEC profession, we've been around for a very long time, yet we still seem to be sort of stagnant in our growth. We hear about productivity issues all the time. We hear that we're laggards in technology. You know, wh why do you think we should, or what are your thoughts on why we should focus on the technology side and really start to emulate some of those startups, emulate how they run a business and how they build a business? I think that's a really good question. And, you know, I I'm reading a book right now, and this is written by Marco Ian Satai and Kareem Lakani. And they're two professors at the Harvard Business School. And the book, it's called Competing in the Age of AI, Strategy and Leadership when Networks, uh, when Algorithms and Networks Rule the World. And frankly, it's an amazing book. It was just released and it has a lot of stuff that's really relevant to our topic today. You know, this idea of digital organizations and operating as agile companies that make decisions on the fly and really leverage technology in every aspect of their business to make them better. So the book is pretty recent and it has a foreword that talks about the disruption brought on by the pandemic. And there's one anecdote in there that I wanted to share with y'all, which was the story of Moderna and their efforts to develop a vaccine for COVID. Which speaking of which, I just recently got my second shot. So I was kind of personally invested in learning about this origin story. January 5th, 2020, the World Health Organization releases its first report uh, that notes a cluster of pneumonia cases in Wuhan, China, right? Something's not right. And Pretty much immediately, Moderna takes note of this report and begins to take action. I mean, immediately. And this is really interesting because for most of the world, we didn't really latch on to this as a problem in the news cycle and kind of in public consciousness for another month or so, right? But Moderna recognizes something and pretty much immediately launches into action. And by January 13th, Moderna takes note of the report and begins to take action, right? Like, like they go right in and their infectious disease team actually finalizes this digital sequence for the vaccine that they created. Like a week and, later. <laughs> right, a week, in a week. We're talking a week here. And think about that, right? Like in just over a week, the company is able to one, recognize a threat and a business opportunity, right? 
but they mobilize resources, develop a plan of attack and execute the plan. So in just over a week, Moderna created the framework for a vaccine. Now, obviously clinical trials still had to be conducted, you know, to test like the impact and the efficacy rates. But, you know, as we can see today, it's really been a tremendous success. And I think what's really interesting about all of this is how did Moderna come to a place as an organization so that it could so quickly identify a problem and construct a solution, right? Because think about a week, how many of us have been kind of like, even, even in some kind of minor clerical action, taking a week to get that approved? Or what about refocusing the efforts of an entire division? One week. So it takes me a whole week sometimes to respond to an email. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I mean, it's crazy to think about. And I, I think that you know, getting into the book, um, they interview the CEO of Moderna, uh, uh, Stefan Bontel, I think. And he describes his organization, Moderna, as a tech company that happens to do biology, a tech company that happens to do biology. I, I think there's a lot to unpack with that statement, but ultimately that's something that I think is really critical in our industry in AEC. To be the best version of ourselves, we need to be tech companies that happen to do AEC. I think it's it's interesting because I always say that people uh, join this industry because of a passion for building or design or engineering, and they begrudgingly have to use the technology. You know, they're sort of drug along half the time. And I still kind of believe that, but in a way it's, this argument is instead of feeling that way, embracing it and saying, okay, well, you know, we have this here, we have to use it now. How can I become the best tech company and I use these things that we hear all the time, like all the buzzwords of lean and agile and, and all of those type approaches to make quick decisions. Because I mean, I, you know, I, I were, went to a, an interiors firm several years ago, many years ago, and I was sort of awestruck by how fast the CEO made a decision on something. And it was a result of, you know, we, we were there to do some just sort of a la carte Revit training. And they just sort of got introduced to it. And I was, I can't remember the specifics, but I was telling her about something else the team really probably could use. And I was just explaining what it was. And she asked like two questions, you know, how much does it cost? How's it going to benefit me? And then she said, yes, go do it. And her response later, when I asked about, you know, how are we able to make such a quick decision? And essentially it's that, you know, any decision we can always rectify or come back from or make accommodations or make updates. But the worst thing is no decision. And I think that's sort of a, it kind of starts to get to the heart of this idea of like a startup mentality, uh, a Silicon Valley mindset is the ability to just one, make decisions and then continuously short, sort of try to act on or improve, you know, said decision. Jackson, um, you know, I'm curious. It, it makes sense on the architecture side, I think, but from construction, I mean, what, what is your thought of this idea of starting to change the way we manage our construction firms and think of them as technology companies that per happen to perform, you know, construction? 
Yeah, I think it's a really uphill battle for contractors specifically um, because they think of it from the perspective of, you know, installing work to make money. Um, And they don't really, a, a lot of the people in the field don't necessarily care about what went into, you know, designing the building or, you know, procuring all of the materials or anything like that. Um, I think one thing that would help contractors is to, um, and like get them into the startup mindset is to just go ahead and have a development team on staff, you know, whether that's one person or, you know, 10 people, because no solution works perfectly for any contractor. And I'm sure it's the same way for design firms as well. There's always, you know, the onesie twosie things. Well, I wish it did this, you know, it would be better, you know, if it worked this way, um, you know, to fit specifically what we like to do. Um, so I think that's something that they'll need, especially, you know, in the years uh, that are forthcoming, because, you know, some contractors, they wait for the next great solution and then it comes out and it's a dud and it doesn't really help them. I mean, We've got people who are using, you know, products that are, you know, from 15, 20 years ago because, you know, it it works, you know, best for their needs. So I think anytime something comes up, that's a broken workflow, you know, that's specific to, you know, your own company, um, you know, having a development team on staff to fix that would kind of be best. But I, I was thinking about this, um, you know, between owners, contractors, and design teams, um, you know, who's most likely to adapt or adopt a startup mindset um, first? Well, you know, I got to say, Jackson, something that's really interesting, you mentioned the notion of having developers on staff and that kind of actually ties to the start of my career in the AEC industry. So, you know, I was first introduced to this notion of tech companies, AEC companies, almost a decade with my first job out of college. And this was a production home builder home. So I thought it was interesting. A couple of episodes ago, you kind of alluded to, uh, you know, uh, home building kind of sparking your interest in construction rather than, uh, you know, a football coach or something to that effect. I thought that was really cool because that's where I started is in the production home building world uh, with Beat and Bow Homes. And now Beatbow is a, uh, they're on the builder 100. They do a thousand plus homes a year and they are the king of West Texas in home building. No one, they have no peers. They have no rivals. And it's because of how good they are at what they do. Uh, and, you know, there, there's, there's a few things that make that why they are so good. You know, they have a really amazing organizational philosophy and kind of a creed around people and faith. Uh, Their mission is build, serve, impact. But what's really interesting is they're led by Cal Ant. This is the president. And he took over from Rick Beatenbow, who started the company. And 
what's very interesting is that Cal did not start in construction. He did not start in any kind of like building industry. He's He was uh, in computer science and he came on to Beatonbow as the developer doing exactly what you're talking about. He started out going around to different teams, looking for things that weren't working and built solutions, in-house solutions that solve those problems. Uh, building tech solutions to elevate the company. And ultimately that kind of became a theme at Beatonbow that they leverage technology as the engine through which they share and track data and information and make decisions. And they do this in really effective ways. And, you know, in this way, it's kind of unfortunate, but I see Beatonbow as kind of a unicorn in the industry in that they are a tech company that employs a dev team and they just happen to build homes like that's their end product. I think you hit on something there because I've often thought about this idea of, you know, my background's in architecture and, and I chose to go the business route. I mean, I got a degree, an MBA, because I recognize there just seemed to be this void, or at least from my perception of a void in terms of business acumen. There's all these sole proprietors, these partnerships, these, you know, huge firms as well, but no one teaches us in architecture school how to run a business or, you know, do anything to that degree. And I started to um, inquire about this idea of does the best person to run an architecture firm, should they be an architect or should they actually be, you know, not an architect? Because architects have a certain type of motivation that comes with it. I mean, they care about whether it's design or putting buildings together or whatever, but being able to put somebody at the top that doesn't have any of those preconceived notions of how the industry should work, doesn't have preconceived notions or motivations driving them regarding design, but strictly from business, you know, whether they be um, just a typical business individual, maybe they have a finance background. Uh, and I started to really wonder, are those the individuals that might make up the best leadership for running a firm in today's AEC? Because it seems like normally what happens is either people on their own go out and start a firm and they have their stamp and they just run, run wild, or someone grows throughout the firm. Over many years, they go from what may be a project manager up to a principal level, finally up to maybe that CEO level but they're still that professional. They've been inundated with the way things get done and how we've done it for so long. And, you know, do we need to start to rethink our structure at the top to be able to instill this type of mindset for those firms that are trying to figure out how do I do this starting today instead of just like, if I was starting from scratch, you know, is that the, the right approach? Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, it's, Something I've thought about a lot is there's kind of this misalignment of incentives in the promotional structure within design firms today, where, you know, the principles are typically elevated for a variety of reasons, but I'd say one of the biggest ones is about driving business, right? Like bringing in revenue, making those connections, and ultimately driving business. And while that's 100% valid, I think that there's sometimes a gap because there isn't the focus on the process. And 
it's it's not just about i think i, I want to be clear about this it's not just about tweaking old processes to make them more efficient you know it, it's it's about redesigning operating processes to facilitate greater speed efficiency and innovation um and and that that focus that way of thinking doesn't necessarily immediately accompany someone that's good at driving a sale or making a, uh, uh, a relationship. And I think that we have to be very intentional as an industry and as you know, leaders in industry to make this uh, choice to say, we're not just going to prioritize getting business, we're going to prioritize evolving our own business. It kind of reminds me of that quote that we pulled out for that recent presentation by Henry Ford, the be ready to revise any system, scrap any method, abandon any theory if the success of the job requires it. And, um, you know, because I think we're starting to talk about these two different things. Again, if, if maybe somebody started a firm today, like if you and I and Jackson started a firm today, you know, maybe we would approach it from like this idea of this startup mentality and, and let's run it like a tech company. But most people that would be listening or wanting to, to go this route already exist. And, you know, how do they start to instill that? And it seems like that's something that kind of is a is culture focused that has to build over time. Um, Jackson, it seems like, you know, we, we've talked before, the GC side for a lot of these tends to be a little harder to migrate, a little more reluctant to do some of this. You know, what are your thoughts on this idea of, instilling in the culture and is this something that takes a while this art or this idea of consistently reviewing our processes and being willing to scrap them and try something new and do you think covid and the sort of disruption it's brought has helped to accelerate any of that for those individuals who were kind of you know had been doing it so long a certain way and then they had to do something differently the AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. So for me, I think COVID really accelerated working from the cloud for contractors. Um, but as far as adopting a startup mindset, it's really difficult, especially for general contractors, because they are managing a bunch of subcontractors that kind of do their things their own way. And there's only so much that you can put in a contract for a particular job, you know, to make them, um, you know, do things, you know, basically change their process um, to fit, you know, what your vision is as a company um, going forward. Uh, I think from a subcontractor perspective, it's a little bit easier because they manage their own labor. 
they procure their own materials and you know most of them are moving towards prefabrication and are kind of you know disrupting their process already due to um you know the skill of labor shortage that didn't just start it's been around you know for many years now i mean i was in college and we were talking about it um and you know we noticed it um you know whenever we were trying to find people um and we were a union contractor so we should have been able to find people you know pretty easily <laughs> um so i i think it's really tough because you know you're tied to a contract and each job is different it's a unique undertaking and uh you know i i just think it's a, a lot tougher from their perspective the generals so then I, you know, when we, when we started setting up this talk, I was thinking about how do we one structure the talk, but if, if I was trying to be that tech company that performs insert, whatever discipline, you know, I was like, Oh, let's talk about culture. Let's be a high level. We'll, we'll work our way down, but maybe the, the right approach is talk about as an industry, it should be a mindset that we as an industry adopt. And so if we recognize there are parts of the industry that, are more resistant for certain reasons. Do we start with them? So you said the subcontractor might be slightly easier. Is it or is it beneficial to start to look at that aspect of our business? And one question, you know, they manage their own work, all the things you just listed. Is that the way that it needs to consistently go and continue to go? Do we are there parts of that aspect of the business that needs to be evolved? And so do we start to apply this mentality to the whole industry first and look at, you know, these things we've been doing, we say we have all this technology and we can advance it. Is that, do we need to start looking at the subcontractor and how they perform and how does that evolve? And then let that trickle upstream. I think for, from a contractor perspective, it probably is going to go the other way around. It'll have to start from the owner just like, um, you know, how BIM got widely adopted because owners said in their contracts that you had to do this. Um, so forced, I, I, I think going back to my earlier question, you know, between designers, contractors, and owners, who's going to be the first to adopt a startup mindset. Um, in my mind, I really think it would be designers just cause you know, that side of the house has always been the one to adopt new technologies first, but from a co contractor perspective, it has, it, it probably has to be the owner because, or go ahead, Anthony. <laughs> oh, I got some things to say. Whew. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, look, I, 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 I almost want to disagree with you on this and, and let me, Go let ahead. me <laughs> yes, let's, let's get spicy. Almost as in, I will disagree or yeah. I will disagree. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, here, here's my mindset is um, back to who the disruptor is. I, I almost don't think it's going to be any of those, which is weird to say, but Think about like the notion of uh, Kodak, the camera company. These guys were the ones that really came to the scene with, uh, you know, the first real 
photography technology, right? So you go up into about 1900 or so, and really the predominant way of documenting the world was through painting. And then we have this paradigm shift into a uh, technology where we push a button and it records an image and that persisted for, you know, you know that technology really persisted for about a hundred years before digital photography kind of took over. And now when we think about like photographs and photography, it's not, it's not a camera, it's a phone, right? So who is the purveyor of photographs today? Who, who deals with that technology the most? It's not a Kodak, it's the phone companies, right? It's Apple. And so my point would be that when we talk about who can come in and disrupt an industry like AEC, I kind of think it's going to be an outsider that lets go of all of these preconceived notions that we have to manage risk and contracts and we have to do all of these things because that's the way we've always done it. I think someone is going to come in from the outside and say, I don't care about all that. I'm here to truly procure the greatest possible solution, whatever that looks like, and then I'll figure it out. I think that's absolutely where it'll come from. Um, because I, I do think, to Jackson, to your point, we, we have a way of doing it. Maybe a lot of that's governed by law that we, we just can't picture a way out of that. And somebody will come in and they'll do it in a way where people, I think, somebody's going to say, that's not fair. You can't do that. And they're going to be like, well, why not? And we won't have an answer why we can't do that. But right now we, as that industry, we can't see another way. Where do you think that comes from? I know a lot of people say manufacturing, but could there be another um, sector of industry that we get that from? I think that's a logical one, but I mean, it may be the tech, com the tech industry. So Going back to Beatonbow as a production home builder, I actually, I kind of suspect that it'll be a design build entity that can bring it all in house uh, under one roof, right? Because like, think, think about what it means if you, if you have, you know, end to end, you're responsible for the design and you're responsible for the uh, deliverable at the end, the, the building, you, you're able to kind of exit, excise those layers of risk management, the contract between the owner and the architect, the contract between the architect and the engineer and the general contractor, that all goes away. And in its place, we kind of get this really nice laboratory where we can start to do rapid iteration and testing. Because think about like, in the home building world, Beat and Bow does a thousand, uh, they do more than a thousand, but let's just say they do a thousand homes in a year. That's a thousand different times for them to collect data from what they did, what worked, what didn't, and then to optimize, right? And potentially even to completely scrap and try something new. The stakes are so much lower when you do a thing a thousand times. And it gives you that data that allows you to, you know, improve because without that data, we don't know what we're doing. In a way, the industry would go full circle because in back in the day, the architect was like that master builder and they kind of did it all. And then we broke all of that into pieces. And then 
I guess from your perspective, the only way to get to this level is to bring it all back. And, you know, I'm, I've said this on other podcasts. We, I learned in school, we talked a lot about integrated project delivery is kind of like the way, and we still haven't figured that out because everyone has different motivations. But if we were able to pull, pull all that together, where we are really do have the same motivation of what we're trying to achieve, which one firm tends to do, I think that would be um, a likely, likely place. Uh, Jackson, what are your thoughts on this idea of a design builder, which do exist? That's not like an outside the norm thing, might be able to be the one to start to adopt this mindset. Yeah, I, I, after hearing both of y'all talk about this and thinking about it a little bit, I think it probably would need to be a design builder. Um, or at least that would be the quickest, um, you know, easiest fit, especially if they, you know, do have, like I said before, a nice development team on staff yes. because, you know, it's the full circle of the project. And then, you know, you've got that development team there to fill in any gaps, whether that's something to help you with procurement something to help you with the logistics of, you know, getting rebar delivered to a job site that's downtown, um, things like that. Um, I think that would be, you know, the logical, the logical firm to do it. And the one that would be, you know, have the easiest time doing it as well. It'd be interesting to see if you start to see additional sources of revenue in these firms. Cause when I think about, and then I'm just wondering, but you think about having these big development um, staff or departments on staff to be able to help customize any solution for yourself. Well, you could look at it two ways. One, you could be customizing it to create a competitive advantage, or you could customize it to then lease out to others and, and sell. And so you might have potentially companies that customize a certain thing to work the way they need, and then they license it. And so there's just a, an additional revenue that didn't exist before. So they're not using it so much as a competitive advantage, um, but more as an income generating sector of their business. You know, I find it puzzling that that isn't a more common scenario. Like you, it, because if you did, if you were a technology company, you have your dev team and you're building your applications and your solutions, and then all almost like okay, I also happen to build buildings using this technology. Great, it's an incubator, right? I can start to see what's working with what I've built. And okay, I need to, I need to edit, I need to do these things. And then ultimately it leads to a better product. But it seems to me that the majority of the industry today, like the solutions that are out there, you know, whether it's a, an Autodesk product or Desalt or uh, something else is it comes down to like, they're really not doing the lab testing, at least at the scale that I think I'm uh, alluding to here. And I think that's strange because it seems like a missed opportunity. Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, I, I think if we rethink maybe we even rethink our business model in terms of where our revenue comes from in our industry. Because if like, if we were, you know, architects, you, somebody would argue, well, I, you know, I, I don't have the fee or the time to be spending on paying a dev team or developing new tools. 
Yet, if there was another component of my business that generated revenue so that I then had the funds to focus on things like that, maybe we could do it on a larger scale. Um, I, I think in, in a way, it's we get ourselves in this way where we're, one, just trying to keep up with our competitors, but we are at the same time staying stagnant, especially on the design side, it seems like. So yeah, we can adopt the newest technology and try to employ it, but it's still on a small scale. You know, we've talked to some people that are doing really cool things, but it's on like, you know, 1% of their projects, right? So it's like they're using it, but they're not gaining all the, the abilities. And so I wonder if for us to get there, we need to actually take a step even further back and say, how can as a firm, we make money in a different scenario than we have been up to this point? I think there's a really big disconnect between, you know, management and developers at big software companies and, you know, draftsmen and, you know, um, general foreman, people working out in the field, um, you know, because <laughs> it's very rare that you'll see a developer or management person at big, you know, software company actually out in the field, seeing how everything's going together, seeing what, you know, a, um, <laughs> like a pipe superintendent's day looks like from day to day. And each day there, it's going to be different because projects are unique undertakings. That's why it's so difficult. Um, so I think, an important thing would be making sure, you know, say design build company with nice development team on staff. What would be ideal is making sure that they are in constant contact with those who are on the front lines, whether that's, you know, people who are designing the buildings or people who are putting them together and making sure that they have a full understanding of what the current workflow is um, you know, down to a very detailed level that way they can see, oh, here's, you know, cause <laughs> on the contractor's perspective, you know, we always think that we're right. We've been doing it the, you know, this way for a long time, yada, yada, yada. Um, you don't say, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but you know, somebody coming in from an outside perspective who has a very technical mind can come in and say, you know, well, why don't you do it this way? Or, you know, you, you could use this and it could really help you, you know? So just having full transparency from department to department, you know, whenever you have the startup mindset, that's, that's the way to make it work. I feel like. I, I agree a hundred percent. I think you're touching on something Jackson that I think is fundamental to the way we have to operate as a, as a really in any business is having that transparency, getting to a flatter organizational structure. If for no other reason to, to pull back the curtains and help everybody understand the process of how decisions are being made, right? Like when it's very opaque and you're just being dictated something, you don't, necessarily understand the why behind it and that why when it's missing 
can lead to a fundamental gap in what the solution needs to do. I think that transparency is important too for these firms that want to build longevity into their business. Uh, and, you know, I always hear this, or I was told this mainly around the architecture again, but, you know, going from first to second generation is a really big step because of ownership and leadership because the characteristics that typically make up that second generational leader are not the exact same that started the business. They don't have the same, potentially don't have the same drive and the same motivations that got it. Going from second to third, it, it's even harder. And then once you get to that third generation, you're far enough detached from the, the original vision that supposedly they're able to reform and do what they need. And so I think having that transparency in the very beginning of what the vision is and the, the goals and the outcomes and, and making sure that it goes past just that boardroom, but through the whole firm helps, I think, to start to um, uh, build towards a more sustainable future. But then at the same time with that, there is this idea of instilling, we've talked about it before, that, that idea of sort of that continuous improvement growth mindset into your culture so that all team members are sort of grabbing onto this idea of, you know, testing and iterating and, and all of that. Right. I, I think we all, every person in a company, in an organization needs to feel a sense of ownership. And, and then you carry like two mindsets in there. One is, is focused on the individual responsibilities of the individual project. Okay, I have to execute. But the other 50% needs to be looking at it from a 10,000 foot level and saying, what am I doing now? How can we do better with this? How can we go bigger and, and really think about, you know, again, that fundamental idea of improving process. Um, as we kind of wrap up, I'm curious if you, you know, this sort of sums up the whole talk, uh, Anthony, if you were building a firm today, you're about to start a firm, you know, what, what does that makeup look like? If you've, you know, we talk about this idea of being a digital technology company that does AEC, you know, are, are you a design build firm? Are you based as your leader, part of the industry, you know, how, how many how, podcasts how, does your uh, company have? Yeah. How many different <laughs> podcasts do you get? You know, yeah, exactly. Um, which we'll be having three soon. So you guys will have to listen for our manufacturing one. Um, nice plug. But yeah. So if you were starting a firm today and you know, kind of putting you on the spot and you were summing up what our talk was today, you know, what do you think that firm looks like or the beginning of a firm? Yeah. Well, I think it needs three podcasts at least. Um, and in all seriousness, I think that it, it depends on, you would have to work your way backwards from what is your product, right? Like understanding I'm going to build something. Is my something a home? Is it a, is it a full apartment structure? Whatever that is kind of understanding that's your output and then working your way back into how do we best facilitate the creation of that output and, and questioning, I don't want to necessarily use the templates of all the people that have, you know, started 
different design or construction companies before me. I really just want to look in this pure analytical context of what is the best way to achieve an outcome of building a home and construct my organization in a way that supports that. And, you know, to Jackson's point, it might very well be that I start out with a dev team. And the, the idea is I'm not interested in filling out the, um, classical design roles and the classical uh, contractor roles until I understand how I'm going to get there. And then I begin to construct that process. So to me, it, it really depends. You know, I do lean towards believing it's design built. Um, but I also think that it could look radically different than anything that we've really seen before in the industry. Like, don't, no need to put uh, restraints on us and say, okay, this is, I, this is what a classical architecture firm looks like. I need to have my principal and my project managers and X, Y, Z. If you approach it from that way, you're condemning yourself to be part of the group that will eventually be displaced. I, uh, you know, I would always hear um, throughout my career, that to be, you know, the CEO or president or whatever of an architecture firm, again, you had to be licensed. Like that was the only way that you could be a, a or even a principal for that matter. That was kind of the argument for a lot of firms. And I always would challenge that notion as, you know, I understand the significance of a license for any professional. And there is a, a weight that goes with that. And there is a legality requirement that goes with that. But I think if we start to challenge the notion of, what characteristics are required for leadership? What, you know, what, what do we want to check? What boxes do we feel like they need to check? And if we have, we been asking for the wrong thing. So we missing out and really good talent that had a different route, because I think if I was starting a firm today, I don't know. I think the my most important thing I'd focus on would be just a diverse diversity of thought at the top. Right. Um, you know, stay away from like the, the one, two type of deal. I always like heard three was nice. Three people was always nice because you can, you can vote, uh, but diversity of thought and treat it as such and find individuals that have their strengths in certain areas that complement each other in other areas. Um, but really embodying this idea of these, you know, all the buzzwords, the agile approach and, and, and really trying to instill that in our culture, but not just because we wanted to, because it's a buzzword, but recognize that there is a benefit to speed. There's a benefit to making decisions quickly um, and being able to then act on those decisions. Uh, I, I think you're right in that it, whatever firm disrupts our, a firm will, there will be someone is going to disrupt this industry because it's going to have to happen. I think it'll look different than any firm we've seen. And, and I, part of me thinks when we see it, it's going to be like, oh yeah, that, of course, that's what it is. You know, of course they have a, you know, a chief visionary officer is at the top and all he talks about is, or she talks about is this, this, and this. Um, so, you know what? I, I really enjoyed, I enjoyed these type talks. They're, they're more broader it's more, you know, hypotheticals and speculation, but I think these talks are important because we need to get better about challenging uh, the status quo. Even just talking about it is an important first step.
otherwise we just fall into the same old, same old. And, you know, we, we, we don't really move the needle very much. Uh, before we end, we ask all our guests to define disruption. And so I'll give you your chance. You know, how would you define disruption, Anthony? Oh man. Uh, it's a good question. I love the question too, because it, it inherently will be different to each person, but disruption to me, I think it means what happens before disruption. So to disrupt, to change industries, it really requires a mindset and a culture that questions those processes, questions the way we work, the way we do. And you have to challenge those base assumptions and really look for better ways of doing things. And through that, through that perpetual quest, you achieve disruption and you become the change agent. So I guess that's what disruption means to me, the, the continual process of questioning processes in order to evolve and improve as an organization. Keep asking why, don't settle. Uh, we've enjoyed having you, man. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, it was great to be here. Love chatting about this and always open to talking about this with others, so thank you. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production. Copyright Applied Software.